0: Hey, this is just a quick note about our sponsor, Privado, the premier enterprise privacy platform purpose-built to bridge the gap between privacy and engineering. Its privacy code scanning solution embeds privacy compliance and governance into the product development lifecycle and empowers privacy and security teams with unparalleled visibility of sensitive data flows and the insights to find and fix privacy vulnerabilities you can leverage Provado's data flows, dynamic data mapping, privacy assessment automation, and real-time visibility of privacy issues. Enter the era of proactive privacy and transform privacy from business blocker to business enabler. To learn more, go to Provado.ai. Hello, I am Deborah J. Farber. Welcome to the Shifting Privacy Left podcast, Where we talk about embedding privacy by design and default into the engineering function to prevent privacy harms to humans and to prevent dystopia. Each week, we'll bring you unique discussions with global privacy technologists and innovators working at the bleeding edge of privacy research and emerging technologies, standards, business models, and ecosystems. Our very first podcast guest is Kavya Perlman, a self described cyber guardian. CEO and co-founder of the Extended Reality Safety Initiative, or XRSI, and my good friend. In this episode, we'll discuss Kavya's background and what drove her to build XRSI, the definition of XR and what it has to do with the term metaverse, new subsets of personal data that are unique to XR, like biometrically inferred data and psychographically inferred data, and risks to people's privacy and safety, and the ethical implications of XR data collection. We'll also speak about Kavya's emphasis on the need to design with humans in the loop, and how to proactively protect privacy and autonomy when building metaverse tech, and information about participating in Metaverse Safety Week this December. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Shifting Privacy Left Podcast. I'm your host and resident privacy guru, Deborah J. Farber. And I am so excited to be here today to kick off my very first episode. Every Tuesday, we'll have lively discussions with privacy technologists, innovators, and ecosystem makers who are working tirelessly to make products, services, and experiences safe for humans by embedding privacy, data protection, and security into the design, architecture, and development, all before code is ever shipped. Of course, I want to thank my sponsors over at Provado, the development-friendly privacy platform, who's made this opportunity possible, and our community partner, XRSI. You can learn more about Provado at provado.ai, and you could learn more about XRSI at xrsi.org. And in fact, speaking of XRSI, today's my great pleasure to introduce my very first guest and cyber guardian, Kavya Perlman the founder and CEO of the Extended Reality Safety Initiative, or XRSI, so our community partner. Kavya has a a BS in computer application and programming from the GVM Institute of Technology and Management and a master's degree in information and network security from DePaul University, Chicago. She's the former information security director for Linden Lab, makers of one of the very first online virtual worlds, Second Life, and VR platform, Sansar. So she's a breadth of experience here. And through the creation of the umbrella organization XRSI, Kavya has pulled in global XR pioneers, visionaries, technologists, and ethicists, including myself, (laughs) launching engaging projects such as the Medical XR Council, Ready Hacker One, the XRSI Child Safety Initiative, Metaverse Reality Check, Cyber XR Coalition, and the program that I lead, the XRSI Privacy and Safety Framework.
1: Kavya, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Congratulations. And oh, my God, this is so exciting. I feel truly honored to be part of this, Deborah. I mean, we've been talking about it for so long. So let's do this. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So obviously, you've got all this
0: breadth of experience. You know, you've worked at Linden Lab, which is, you know, even I've checked out Second Life and, you know, way back when, and it still has like so many users. Just tell me a little bit about what inspired you to create XRSI after having worked in the virtual reality and augmented reality space, which is what we collectively call XR, (laughs) right? Just for our listeners here. In addition to some other aspects, right? What inspired you to create XRSI and how would you sum up the overall mission of the org?
1: For sure. As you know, Deborah, this goes back to my early intuition around my career that one day I want to be able to bridge the gaps between governments and the technologists, and you know, mostly people who make decisions about cyber warfare or cybersecurity oftentimes don't understand the consequences on humans, societies, and in general, countries altogether. So I remember back in 2016, that's when it really started to hit me back when I was working at Facebook doing third-party security during U.S. presidential election time, the impact on humans and societies when the risks around technology are ignored or just not understood And thereafter, when I assumed the director of information security at Linden, that prototypical metaverse, that second life, the oldest existing virtual world, had its own unique challenges. And uh, tremendous amount of regulatory uh, obligations that we had to comply with. So I had to get creative together with the chief compliance officer there, Scott Butler, one of my really good friends. And we started to think in what innovative ways to safeguard those virtual worlds. And they had very unique and interesting aspects that we had to take into account. So this is where, you know, I started to think about how the world is going to look different because they were also developing this VR platform called Sansar. And I was trying to provide policy, tech policy guidance, cybersecurity guidance to that platform as well. So as soon as I quit Linden Lab, and it was uh, definitely something that was on my mind is continue to drive towards that aspiration of bridging the gap between what is understood by governments, what is understood by stakeholders, but what the technology really needs at the code level. How do we engineer better? And that's where XRSI came into being. Cause first I met Ibrahim Begili, who was, uh, who is our senior advisor at XRSI was hacking virtual reality. And I was really inspired by his work, took his work and uh, some of the novel cyber attacks he did, he figured out with his team at the University of New Haven to the world and uh, announced this mission to help build safety and inclusion in extended reality ecosystems or emerging tech ecosystems. Nowadays, we've kind of have this common word for it, Web3 or metaverse, and those are the emerging tech ecosystems we're noticing. So yeah, those things inspired me because I could see the world is going to look a lot different and we need to get ready for what is to come.
0: Amazing. And before I go on, could you just give us a quick overview of uh, the work you did for Facebook in that moment and was it 2016 you said that's or, uh, right it was a it was a contract right not as an employee
1: right so i was a consultant but um privileged to and it's it goes back to you know some of the controls that were not that mature during that time pretty much had the privilege of everything that an employee would You know, we're talking about 2016. And as everybody knows about, you know, what happened during that time, the risk posture of this company, Facebook, had elevated to, you know, handling nation state attacks. And that hadn't been seen before. So this was a totally different ballgame, and I had the front row seat to it.
0: That's so interesting. Honestly, I wish I was a fly on the wall in those meetings. So going back to XRSI, how would you sum up the overall? mission of the org like I understand now what inspired you to create it but you know what's the mission what are the what are the main goals for the organization stay with us we'll be right back Hello loyal listeners. The Shifting Privacy Left podcast is seeking sponsors who want to help educate our growing community of privacy engineers. Position your brand in front of privacy engineers, architects, developers, researchers, and privacy tech buyers. Insert a 30 to 60 second ad like this one into every published episode of the podcast. This is dynamic content after all. Feature your new product, an upcoming conference, a sponsored special deal, endless opportunities. Email sponsorship at shiftingprivacyleft.com for more information on our sponsorship package. Okay, let's get back to our engaging privacy
1: conversation. So we believe that the world needs something more proactive. Thus far, every Let's say nonprofit organizations that are, you know, trying to make a better internet generally talk about policy, not necessarily integrating it with, you know, how engineers should code or proactively get in front of some of these issues. So this is where I think XRSI is unique. We are trying to proactively. And as you know, Deborah, proactively discover things that are risky. And it is very challenging because people can't even agree to the terms or what should be called this? What is XR? What is the metaverse? So starting with just, you know, creating a common baseline understanding all the way to establishing some proactive measure and iterating constantly on that knowledge. So as the technology develops, there is a dire need to proactively safeguard these new technologies. And that's where XRSI is uniquely positioned because we have about now we have like over 160 advisors and volunteers worldwide that are actively looking into curating some of the research from various different perspectives and angles and then putting together it in the form of uh, various white papers, but all the way to a comprehensive framework, which you're leading and part of the XRSI privacy and safety framework. That's one of my favorite programs. But, you know, there are several other programs because it's almost like a layer of onion that just keeps peeling at the core of it is a human centeredness, safeguarding and ethics and privacy. But when you look at it from various different angles, we got to think about, oh, impact on humans' brains. So there is this aspect of medical that we address via Medical XR Council to try to understand various biometric stuff, medical uh, XR-related stuff. Then there is the aspect of, oh, if all the media platforms are saying – Things you know that may or may not be trusted. Where do we go to find the trust? So we're like, okay, we need a media platform. So Ready Hacker One came into existence. A special focus on children is necessary. This is the kind of technologies and the convergence we're dealing with. They're very unique, and we haven't prepared well to address those things. So Children's Safety Initiative. Cyber XR coalition to specifically address the diversity and inclusion aspects that stem from algorithmic biases, that stem from now representation in virtual environments. So all of these collective things from a multidisciplinary perspective looked at just to create a overall comprehensive effort to safeguard. And that's why I keep saying safety and safeguard, because it's way beyond just security it's way beyond just physical security. We have to really think about what's so unique about these emerging technologies. And that's what kind of remains at the forefront. A couple of things that I would even talk about human in the loop or societies in the loop that we didn't take into account back in 2016. And so now we have to, and we must. That's
0: awesome. And I want to, for our listeners, kind of let them know, I guess, about the XRSI privacy and safety framework. But I've come on board to help XRSI about this past January. So however many months that is (laughs) ago, Kavya and I met on International Privacy Awareness Day. So- It was just a well-timed, it almost feels like some sort of divine timing where the cyber guardian and privacy guru meet for the first time and all this wonderful magic and sparks happen. So Kavya kind of told me all about what she's doing at the organization and how well formed the various programs already were. And she had already helped lead version one of this framework. So I am now helping with the iteration of version 2 where we're just getting a lot more into the depths of the controls that you select for the various risks, but the framework really is a comprehensive risk management framework that can be used by businesses of any size. We've kind of right-sized it for small emerging, you know, your small startup teams that are working in the metaverse. It could be a medium-sized company that's in high growth mode, or it could be an enterprise that's putting together some program or a platform or hardware for the metaverse, and they have a more systematized way of addressing risks. So obviously, all three types of organizations wouldn't be able to have the same level of staff. ability to mature their controls for privacy and safety. So we've kind of right-sized guidance that would help organizations achieve the goal of risk mitigation, first risk identification and then mitigation. We were inspired to put this framework together by NIST's privacy framework, but we've added so much more. We liked the way that they organized the flywheel of objectives th- that you want to achieve. And so we've kind of took from that and made other improvements that are very specific to the XR space. And so, you know, if anyone is listening to this and is, really wants to get involved, please do reach out to me after my email address is Deborah at xrsi.org for this particular program. Because, of course, XRSI is only one of the organizations I work with. So I have my own email address as well for my company, Principled LLC.
1: Now that you reminded me of the time that we met, so you want to, I don't think I've ever mentioned to you what really attracted me to, I was like in in the back of my mind as I was listening to uh, through the Twitter space, I was like, oh my gosh. And I don't know if you remember, right after that, I had sent a tweet that there was some kind of a privacy discussion around XR. And I was like, I only wonder if there was a privacy guru, because, you know, the kind of territory we're, we're trying to address, it's an uncharted territory. And it really, experience alone is not enough. It really requires wisdom. And so when you were, you know, we stayed in the Twitter spaces for hours and hours, that's exactly what I saw with you And guru is so appropriate word for that, that wisdom necessary to what you are doing today is to inform people to shift left for privacy. And until I met you, I hadn't heard any expert looking at privacy from that perspective from the perspective of what must happen at the engineering level, at the architecture level, and taking that, all that detail. Another aspect was you were like, um, (laughs) you had the pretty good understanding of Hedera and the decentralized architecture. And in version 2.0, we wanted to explore the decentralization and XR intersection. So it was so perfect. I don't know if I'd ever mentioned to you, but this was like, oh my God, we need this privacy guru for XR. And Thankfully, you accepted. And there we are just trying to address and hopefully soon launching the version 2.0 of the privacy. That's amazing. Framework.
0: I honestly had no idea you were literally thinking to yourself. And of course, you you are Indian. So, you know, guru, guru. <laughs> actually is you use in place of teacher, right? And it, exactly. um, so it's so funny. Again, it felt like A divine timing to me as well. I just didn't know that aspect of it. And I chose the moniker privacy guru, by the way, she's referring to my, my Twitter handle, my email, my, you know, one of my private email addresses, my, I use it everywhere on the web for my short links to like my LinkedIn. I chose that back when Gmail was still in its infancy and it was like invite only and I was in law school. And it's amazing how, you know, I guess I wanted to be the privacy guru, but I've kind of now grown into be actually being that role that I've set for myself. So it's just reflecting back. I, th- I, I do find that fascinating. And I'm glad you found me. I'm glad we found each other. And so, I mean, I feel like this is like a, a virtual hug we're having right now that everyone's <laughs> listening into. Um, so let's dive deeper into some of the conversation. And, you know, I said that XR is extended reality, but, you know, for our listeners, and I define that, but how, how would you give the full definition to what is XR when we're talking about XRSI? What's XR?
1: So XR is generally used like an umbrella term, extended reality. The way I like to describe to most people is we are extending our realities to go into another dimension. And now that dimension, when the metaverse, this next iteration of the internet is in its full effect, that's what I would say. We will extend our reality to go to the metaverse. And so XR really is an umbrella term where we have our perceived reality, the objects that we can see, the perceived environment. But anytime we enhance that, whether it is using virtual reality, which is you know fully digitized environment, and you can interact with using some head-mounted goggles. Or it is an augmented reality, which is, you know, augmenting digital objects on top of the real world. Your perceived world is now enhanced. Or it is any other form of combination, whether using a desktop experience to really extending your dimension of presence, experiencing realities. So that's where, you know, this kind of umbrella term serves really well, is every time, like if you look at Second Life, people are literally creating their extension of their original life in different forms, different avatars, and that's where XR is really a quite a unique term, an umbrella term to refer to a spectrum of reality that is beyond just our perceived reality at the moment. And that's what I right. think XR is, yeah.
0: Great. And and so the thing is, we keep hearing about the metaverse, but we also hear about, you know, VR, AR, XR, you know, XR as the umbrella term. And to me, it kind of seems like companies are using the term metaverse, or a lot of companies, at least that are using the term metaverse, are using it really to market, rebrand virtual reality or, or augmented reality. You know, I'm seeing a lot of VC firms and large tech companies. I mean, look at Meta, even, right? They are the metaverse companies, kind of how they're branding themselves. They're investing billions and billions of dollars in the pursuit of creating immersive experiences. So, how do you define what the metaverse
1: is, and how does that
0: align or diverge from what XR is?
1: Good question, and very timely question, because a lot of people sort of try to define that. What I concern myself most with is um, I personally don't really care whether people call it the M word or any other S word, simulated reality or whatever. But what I really focus on is the convergence that we are referring to. When we call a metaverse, is essentially is a confluence of so many different technologies that will enable us to extend reality into various different dimensions dimensions that we can't really see from naked eye that's why we need these devices so technologies like AR VR 5G edge networks improved graphics and computer hardware like there's a lot of different capabilities IoT devices etc would go into creating a fully networked interoperable next iteration of the internet, essentially, where we would have various different properties, but interoperability would be one big one. Immersion, the ability to immerse ourselves and not just, you know, at a hand, like currently we experience the internet at a hand's distance, even at the, you know, handheld, you're kind of like a little bit disassociated. But with the next iteration or the metaverse, it's much more immersive, or at least has the option to immerse yourself. And sometimes even being almost indistinguishable from reality, almost like a replacing reality, but not entirely. So I think metaverse is going to become this successor state to what mobile computing, to mobile computing, and primarily, even though it just comes from some of the popular culture, but it will... I really hope that it's it's not going to be that pop culture dystopian nightmare. And that's where we come into play, is we're trying to make sure that we don't just create this dystopic nightmare that was documented in Snow Crash, where people are addicted, they've kind of lost a sense of reality, etc. And there are all these problems, we are trying to proactively build better internet than the one that is mentioned in one of those pop culture books, Snow Crash.
0: Amazing. Um, I say amazing because you've just touched on a bunch of things that I've raised. Like I have, I have a lot to say on. So first, I'll point out that I have definitely read Snow Crash. It is my fiance's favorite book. It's by Neal Stephenson, a real futurist who just created the cyberpunk book that, that, and the concept of the metaverse. What's fascinating to me is how usually tech bros will look at dystopian novels find some technology really interesting and then want to bring it to life, only see the positives in it and not really put the effort into preventing the dystopia that was obviously part of the novel they picked it up from. I feel like the metaverse is a great example of that. So that's number one. The second is people seem to conflate that the metaverse, they they seem to make the metaverse appear as if it's, or, or define the metaverse as one place that they are building. Like I am building a metaverse. And to me, um, the metaverse, as you say, is like the next stage of the internet. You don't have a internet, you have the internet that is a connection of many different web servers and websites and all of the independently owned and operated assets kind of all are accessible through an interface, like through a browser. And so for the metaverse, I mean, to me that it seems like that is the end state where the differences that you have from the internet today is that it's going to be uh, different levels of immersion, right? You have an immersive experience. This is not like not just that you have what we have in many things today where you might have like, oh, look at how this sofa looks in your actual room before you buy it. Like we have that and that's going to be a precursor to what's in the, um, the metaverse. But I wouldn't say that that app that allows you to do that is a metaverse, <laughs> right? What are your thoughts on that or how people talk about the metaverse?
1: So I want to be very very clear on this. Like the XRSI definition to me is the simplest for everyone. It's metaverse is the interconnected virtual worlds, but interconnected and interoperable virtual worlds. So where we can actually go from one particular virtual world, whether it is augmented, mixed, or however, and extend our reality into other virtual worlds as well. So hopefully over time, This will become more of a common understanding. In fact, for that matter, we are working on a particular standard that will uh, define, as you know, XRSI is a standard developing organization. So we're working together with a few other standard bodies as well to potentially provide a standard definition and put that standard out there. It's quite a challenge, you know, not just the metaverse, but we saw that with XR also initially. People were like, what is XR? What is VR? And I used to go around the world, you know, sort of teaching them what makes an extended reality. And so now we are kind of fighting that same war of words with metaverse. But it's really important to know that meta or metas, any of the platform is not the metaverse. Second Life is not the metaverse. Or Roblox or Fortnite, no matter how sophisticated they are, whether they have a component of commerce, whether they have a component of social immersion, that's not the metaverse. The metaverse is only one And it is evolving as we experience more and more convergence of these technologies. The unique aspect that I'm looking at is, oh, hey, how these technologies are coming together. What about safety? What about privacy? What about identity protection in these environments where, you know, you can be an embodied avatar? So what happens to your identity in the front end, in the back end? ethical decisions, because we need persistence, interoperability, and that means we need to share lots of data across the companies. How does that all work out? And how do we make sure that human in the loop or societies in the loop are not undermined or minorities are not targeted or murdered because they just didn't know that they were sharing so much more data about themselves? Right.
0: So that actually brings up the segue basically into two new categories of personal data at that XRSI defines. You know, I know through my work with you and XRSI that a truly immersive experience necessitates the collection of tons of personal data. And so two new areas that are really focused or really a subset of personal data that are, you know, part of the vast data collection of the metaverse is going to be biometrically inferred data and psychographically inferred data. Can you elaborate a little bit on, what, on these terms and what they mean, and then perhaps give us a few examples? Sure.
1: XRSI is one of the first organizations that kind of defined XR data. So XR data includes what we know, personal identifiable information, we call it in the United States, but personal data according to GDPR. But what we say is it includes way more. It includes biometrically inferred data, sensor data to enable, we call it six degrees of freedom, uh, creating presence, persistence, and immersion. So any kind of data, inferred data, sensor data that is required to create that presence, persistence, immersion, we collectively call it XR data. Now within that XR data, there are these two subcategories that are so important to understand as well as potentially even put in the law because they're going to impact how we treat that data. So let's look at biometrically inferred data, a collection of data sets that is inferred from behavioral, physical, or biometric identification techniques or other nonverbal communication. This could be inference of your gender identity, inference of mental workload or health status, cognitive ability? Is the person sleepy? What about their religious background, cultural background? So PII essentially doesn't directly say, oh, this person is of this religion, but one could infer those things. One could infer skills and abilities and all the way to physical health, mental health. And then there is the second type of uh, data that we're talking about, which is a psychographically inferred data. This Segment is specifically to address the intersection of XR and neurotechnologies. This is the data that results from inference of neurological, psychological, or behavioral patterns. And this kind of a data is really just, you know, people or companies inferring what are the responses of humans to various types of stimuli, what are, the, what are the neurological responses? By collecting and aggregating these types of data one could pretty much quite accurately establish a sort of a profile, a psychographic profile, and infer their emotional state or even like physical state of mind. And that's where dissecting in these two categories can allow us not only to inform engineers what kind of protections are needed in specific contexts, because those protections definitely depend on the context. In the medical context, for example, We want this data to be shared within a certain network, like a healthcare network. But we don't want this data, at least not in the United States. So again, the context matter. In certain jurisdiction, you shared that data with an insurance provider, you could be denied coverage because they know your health condition before you even know about that. So those kinds of protections have to be built in. Not only engineers have to understand when they're coding, but also the laws have to take that into account and provide necessary guidance that will allow people to seek remedy if any of their biometrically inferred or psychographically inferred data is somehow putting them at risk or causing harm of any kind.
0: So this actually kind of reminds me to reiterate to the technical folks who are listening in and to remind them that when you're risk modeling or, you know, for your new product or service or, or you know, new idea you're bringing to market, that it's not about risk modeling for the company itself. Right. It's not about how do you reduce risk to the company that might be part of your job. That's 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 absolutely valid to look at. But the underlying the key part of the risk assessments that you need to be doing from a privacy and safety perspective is about risk to the human that's using your product and service. And so you often talk
1: about the concept of human in the loop. Can you unpack that a little for us? What do you mean by this phrase? Yeah, and this is a very significantly important aspect. We discovered it during our research for version 1.1. We never published anything, but the research as we were you know, meeting with several multidisciplinary stakeholders is hey, all the frameworks that currently exist, they talk about various risk coming from networks, nodes, server, even the cyber attacks. They're only addressing that sort of attack surface. But with respect to extended reality or these emerging technologies, in fact, that was true in 2016, too. We had a democracy at risk, societies at risk. This thing has started to come into play, I would say, I would have to go back to 2011 when Egyptian revolution happened and people were using technology to potentially coordinate with humans to bring down a dictator. That's where we saw a society essentially using technology to influence massive political outcome. So this is where things get really, really interesting. But what we're talking about now is there is a human that is in the loop, giving away potentially all of the data as if they're literally part of that network. And that's what is so unique about the metaverse is the human experience itself is a part of the equation. And we need to protect that and safeguard that. And especially when it ta- when it comes to children, it's even more critical because children don't necessarily have an autonomy; they depend on parents. And likewise, what what we what we are risking here when we say human in the loop and the society in the loop are at risk is human autonomy. It goes beyond privacy, where you know privacy is like, hey, I want to remain private and protect my information. Here, we're talking about our mental cognition. Our mental thoughts, thought patterns, those are all at risk. And essentially human autonomy, human free will, human agency. Because we are seeing companies already taking eye tracking data, gaze pose, all this data with facial tracking data. So where does this lead to? This could lead to. What's that? Voice data as Voice well. Voice data, exactly. Voice pattern. So all of this could lead to humans inevitably being so highly influenced by, you know, this other intersection. And that's why convergence, I keep saying, because there is this other in- intersection of artificial intelligence could be used to persuade human beings make decisions that they not, don't necessarily want to. But they would think it's their decision, but they'd be influenced by all these algorithms or surrounding factors. And that's why I keep saying the human in the loop ourselves, when we put on these glasses or when we experience these new emerging tech ecosystems, we need to be aware of that. And whether we use it or not, that's the other part too. It's like as a bystander, we have to worry about our privacy and our autonomy because uh, we don't necessarily have to put on the headset. One could still be recorded by other people who are using these technologies and you just come in contact with it. You know, you make such excellent
0: points around agency and how, you know, I just want to stress that your thought patterns and, you know, how you're thinking about certain things or what excites you because of the the dilation of your pupils and that data that is being collected. uh, What scares you because of the data that's collected about potentially like how, you know, sensors in the room or on your body that, that talk about other feedback that you're giving off, other signals. Can you get more Private than that. Can you get more personal than how you think about things? I don't think so. I think this is like the essence of what you are as an individual. And privacy, I believe, is, you know, is a subset of agency. It is those personal moments, those personal, you know, we want free from government, but also free from businesses to be, you know, that much embedded into our Thought processes, so I think this is some of the most sensitive data that can ever be collected, and it's really scary that it could be weaponized against you even through things that seem innocuous, like small nudges and dark patterns that get you to do things you would not have otherwise done if not for the slight manipulation that the a company might have uh, done to their you know whether it's an algorithm or just the experiential environment it chooses to present to you yeah, yeah
1: we have invented so, ability to influence moods influence emotions show some mental imagery i mean all these things are being done but at a sort of a not so dangerous <laughs> level uh, <not> when <laughs> we talk about this convergence this is really you know uh, that human in the loop that we talk about is basically being targeted from every angle from any every aspect indeed so I definitely want to talk
0: about more positive things, you know, as opposed to like, just, you know, talking about all the risks. And, you know, I don't want this podcast to be only about fear, because I think there's a lot of exciting things about this technology. But I do first think it's important that we talk about some of the major threat vectors in the, the metaverse, both physical threats, as well as psychological threats. And if you could give some examples to just illustrate your point, that would also be really helpful.
1: Yeah. So actually, Deborah, I think it's very positive that we talk about these things, because what we're really talking about is trust. I want to be able to trust the technology that is today, literally today, is being used to perform coordinated assisted surgeries. So at the Medical XR Council at XRSI, there are people who are practically utilizing augmented reality devices, hololenses, to perform surgical operations or to train clinicians. And that's what it is. It's, I see it as a very positive. When I talk about these threats... And when I'm able to unpack or just discover new cyber attacks, it gives me such hope that we discovered it first and we understand it now. And now literally, as you know, we're writing advisory to FTC just this week what should go into those new lawmaking, the rulemaking. So I see it as a very positive thing, even though some may think, oh my God, threats and dangers and et cetera, but look, we are the cyber guardian and privacy guru. We're not not pushing the danger on you. We're really removing the danger from the technology or the threats proactively. So we're staying ahead of the bad guys. And I see this as a very positive thing.
0: Exactly. I mean, you know, obviously, that's why I find inspiration in doing this work. So you make an excellent point and even reframing it about trust, because that's really what it is. No metaverse related product is going to or service going to be ever take off if no one trusts it. And there's some companies out there like meta that, you know, have to earn that trust because there's an element of distrust as a result of uh, some previous privacy approaches and snafus. So so thank you for that. I really do appreciate it. I also want to point out two things. One, I think the metaverse is not here yet. I think it's going to take minimum 15, 20 years. This is me personally, before we have anything close to an immersive experience where people are using on a daily basis outside of an initial phone call to someone who's got an avatar in like a phone booth somewhere where they maybe they're in a small space or other small little pieces of the metaverse might be being built. But the challenge right now is being able to render the immersion, immersive experience using the technologies out there today. We don't have the processing power yet to be able to, you know, render a a metaverse in the way that we, you know, most people are envisioning it uh, or most as it's being sold as to what the end game is here. We've got components of it. People in the Web3 space using NFTs to transfer value in and out of various virtual reality spaces. And there's all these different, I don't want to say fiefdoms, although it can feel that way at times, but all these different attempts at building portions of what will eventually be the metaverse. That's the first thing. I do want to ask you, how far down the road do you think it'll be before we actually have, you know, do you agree it'll take 15, 20 years to to even get there? The second point I was going to make is I'm so inspired by the fact that unlike any other time I think in existence in the world, there have never been so many experts of different varieties, different areas of expertise coming together to design for the web here. Like we've got economists mixed with cloud experts, mixed with privacy experts and security experts. And I think the fact that it's going to take 15 to 20 years to get there, it provides us with this opportunity right now to say, okay, if this is what you're going to build, here are all the risks. Here are the pitfalls to avoid. Here's the right way to to think about building with privacy and safety by design and default. And so I see that as the big opportunity. And that's what inspires me is that we have time to really get in front of the problem. We have time to not only educate the businesses, but to educate the regulators on what is possible today and where are they going in the future and how do we help them scale regulations to kind of drive the ethical Considerations that need to be put in place. Okay, now what? <laughs> now you can <could laughs> comment on that or or answer the a question about the timing of the metaverse.
1: I generally refuse to answer these type of questions as to you okay. know how uh, you know how far along or what's going to happen. But I I would say though the reason why I tend to not really claim anything one I'm not a futurist I'm just a researcher who collects information and tries to attribute what's going to happen so the based on the research so far and things that I know is that we are moving from linear progression of technology to more exponential. And an example I would take is we saw stable diffusion, the aspect of artificial intelligence algorithm that literally revolutionized the way art is done. And in a matter of 30 days, you saw stable diffusion literally impacting every possible use case, even incorporated within Canva, which is an application to design various you know, simple banners, all the way to sophisticated uh, designs uh, that can be used for various different use cases. But that's what I see is we are probably discounting the fact that when we say 15 years, that's one thing. And then the second factor is climate change, what we saw with COVID, like there are some unaccounted factors that we still don't know. To me, it feels very much like, you know, intuitive. Humans are so intuitive and so smart that we are preparing for something that we have maybe not confronted just yet, kind of like we had Zoom ready when COVID happened. I mean, nobody really planned to have 1.8 billion plus children move online all of a sudden, but we did confront those realities. Almost uh, the sexual child harassment online increased so many folds. And that's what is a hope here, is that whether it is two years or five years or whether it is 10 years, I wouldn't think 15, maybe like because of all the things that I mentioned. But yeah, whatever that time frame is, you're so right. We have a window of opportunities. So we need to get these building blocks because what we are putting together right now, these inter Independent virtual worlds, or converging artificial intelligence and NFT, and all these other technology convergence, Now we have the opportunity to get it right at the level of code, and that's why, again, you know, I I really love the idea that you're introducing and hammering on, uh, Deborah, is this shifting privacy left is really trying to move towards the aspect where really code is happening. And define privacy there, influence the privacy aspects there, all the way to gaining control of our agency uh, at the code level, uh, designing by uh, safety, by design and default. Thank you. That's what I think. And I don't know. You know, I haven't seen the future (laughs) Yeah, right. Of course. And of course, I'm just, it's a batter
0: of, um, I'm, you know, you're drinking from the fire hose of information around the metaverse. I'm drinking from the fire hose of information about privacy. I'm now expanding that to include the metaverse, but it's, you know, it's a lot of info. But what we are able to do is kind of our, you know, we're great as humans doing pattern recognition and then being able to kind of identify trends, trends of decentralization, trends of, you know, humans wanting agency back and, you know, not, wanting to feel like uh just a handful of corporations have all the power and are extorting value out of them and they get nothing back. And so I named this podcast show Shifting Privacy Left because there has been a focus for many years. I've for 17 years I've been in the privacy space. So I've watched it grow up. And it has always been focused too much on the legal space, too much on lawyers. Like at the very beginning it was I am a lawyer by training, so I feel you know pretty good about making the statement that they're Have been too much focus on the legal function owning uh, privacy, and as a result, it took so long to shift left because there's a whole variety of reasons that maybe on another podcast we could discuss. But because of the focus on legal and then governance, risk, compliance, and starting to really like build those policies and get your procedures down and make sure you're able to effectuate any rights that somebody has, and you know if they say I want you to delete data about me or show me what data you have about me, there's these great rights that individuals have as a result of GDPR and GDPR requirements being exported around the world, including like the California CCPA, and then a host of other states. And it, it, eventually, I'm sure every state in the US is going to have a similar law. So uh, I don't think there'll ever be a federal law. That's that's I'm just thrown that in there with no commentary other than that. And so there's been so much of that Uh, But businesses very often get stuck with the compliance paper chase and, you know, none of the rules you have are actually going to affect the data itself. They're not going to actually safeguard anything unless somebody in the, some architect or or designer uh, designs for an experience, an architect designs for how data flows and the various components of the system you're creating will be structured and the privacy engineer, you know, is going to look and make sure that everything about the code is thinking about how data is shared and the algorithms are using it. None of this is going to be solved for with the GRC function by itself. It has to be part of a privacy by design and privacy engineering program. And, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time the GDPR requires privacy by design principles to be considered it's just hasn't really happened enough and so the goal of my podcast here is really to scream from the rooftops like here's some advice here's some people working in that space here's some technologies to consider for technologists and innovators bringing new products to market to make sure that they're building with privacy and safety by design and default so given that and I know we don't have much time left I've this question and then one more for you. What advice would you give to the builders of immersive products and services? And, you know, what what would you urge regulators to consider when considering regulating the metaverse?
1: For sure. I think uh, that's a very big, large question, but I try to sum it up in maybe three points. One of my very first advice is adopt XRSI privacy and safety framework, Within this framework, we are capturing the very aspect that, you know, back in the days as a head of security or the information security director that I would hand over to a senior director at engineering or the application security engineer. So it's literally capturing that all the way to what are the potential nuances that must go into the legal landscape, which hasn't really happened yet. But that's what this framework is quite unique to provide guidance from the developer's level all the way to the regulatory uh, aspects. Second recommendation is to learn about the technology. So let's say you are not a XR engineer or you're not really working in the metaverse field just yet. Well, my advice to you is get busy learning about it, because this is where the world is moving to. And whether you're a privacy professional, a cybersecurity professional, if the next iteration of the internet is 3D, is immersive, then we better get our handle on what what are we talking about here. So starting with you know basic terminologies, to all the way to plugging into some kind of a boot camp or taking some professional coursework. And my final recommendation is to receive these interventions. One that is being led by XRSI is Metaverse Safety Week, which is in December. And in this intervention, year after year, we're trying to bring various different stakeholders, regulators, lawmakers, technologists, big tech organizations to essentially talk about how are we going to safeguard these converging technologies. And so I think that's where really, you know, if you're listening and interested, that's where I would direct current attention is to go listen to or be part of this Metaverse Safety Week 10th to 15th of December and uh, figure out where in this ecosystem you fit in. Even as a bystander, you want to be aware of your rights. You want to be aware of what are the consequences that your children might have to face or yourself might have to face. It could be because you are not white or minority or you know your, your data is now being captured by your company because they are training using XR devices. So these things lead to very many unintended consequences. And that's where, you know, we're going to be discussing all that. So those are my three recommendations, Deborah. And I know there is a lot more, but that's where, you know, I direct the energy mostly to the framework, to the metaverse safety week, and essentially encourage everyone to learn about this new domain
0: amazing amazing i i just want to double click here on the metaverse safety week that's it's five separate days of just really wonderful content from some real pioneers in the space like some regulators some you know you could say if there's a few people that you you wanted to highlight um but i also wanted to say like you know tell people where to go to learn more about metaverse safety week and i do believe it's free for anyone to attend correct so exactly it's not, um, yeah. So this is literally for anyone. If it's, uh, if you want to just learn about, let's say human rights in the metaverse, I believe that's the first day of the Metaverse Safety Week conference. So you could tune in for one day, two days, up to five days. There's definitely different content for each of the days of the week. And, uh, I hope to see a lot of you there. And if you're looking to sponsor Metaverse Safety Week, there's definitely opportunity there. XRSI can't continue to do their work without the amazing support from, you know, sponsors, which we have. But we'd love to add more organizations to the community so that we can make a stronger community. Right? I mean, you know, be part of this. That you can't be part of this, if you don't have a voice and you're not showing up to the table to add your voices, I guess what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, no, I I definitely want to give out the Metaverse Safety Week website, metaversesafetyweek.org. And really, you know, my tremendous gratitude to these amazing individuals and professionals, regulators. So we would have Congresswoman Lori Tarhan, who is literally involved in children online privacy reform, uh, delivering a keynote on day three. On day one, we would hear from uh, Human Rights Commissioner of Australia, Lauren Finlay delivering a closing keynote on the human rights in the metaverse focus day. On day two, we have people from. We actually have an astronaut, the first African American woman to take the to fly the civilian spaceship into space. The inspiration for, I mean, she's such a hero, and I can't wait to meet her in virtual reality while she delivers the opening keynote on day two. We'll hear from NHS. We have a head of advisory of Cisco. Uh, we have folks from U.S. Air Force, Louis Rosenberg, who you know most in XR know is the chief scientist uh, at one point at NASA and currently Pioneer and even advisor of XRSI, we have you, Deborah, doing a remarkable announcement around shared responsibility model, and uh, we even have a rapper, few regulators from the UK, from Australia, of course, Julie Inman Grant, one of uh, another superhero around online safety, with folks from NHS. So I mean, the list is endless. Go to MetaverseSafetyWeek.org, check it out. You can do so many things. You can either show up as a participant. You can update your pictures to demonstrate support on the social media profile. You can sponsor. You can be a community partner. But most definitely, just, you know, talk to people who may be impacted by this directly or indirectly, and it's an opportunity for all of us to come together and discuss what the impacts are going to be and how are we going to stay ahead of those things. So thank you, Deborah. you mentioned
0: you're very welcome and you mentioned it is going to be in a virtual reality space so you know how could you have a metaverse conference without actually like interacting in some sort of vr space so you know it's free and it's an opportunity to actually like check out some new uh new platform and technology kavia thank you so much honestly it was my pleasure to interview you on my first podcast episode I am absolutely positive that all the listeners will find value in what you've shared with us today. And I wish you all the best. And I love working with you. So, you know, (laughs) I know I'll see you soon. But how can anyone reach out to you if they want to
1: get in touch with you? Thank you, Deborah, And such an honor to be your first guest on the podcast. If uh, any listener wants to reach back out to me, I'm at kavya at xrsi.org, which is K-A-V-Y-A at xrsi.org, or just DM Deborah. We're all very, very connected, uh, have each other on signal, etc. So thank you again for allowing this uh, brainstorm of how do we address these convergences and the risks that come together. And congratulations again. Shift privacy left. I already love it. It's
0: so awesome. Well, thank you so much. And until next week, everyone, we'll be back with great content and talk to you then. Thanks for joining us this week on Shifting Privacy Left. Make sure to visit our website, shiftingprivacyleft.com, where you can subscribe to updates so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found this episode valuable, go ahead and share it with a friend. And if you're an engineer who cares passionately about privacy, check out Privado, the developer friendly privacy platform and sponsor of this show. To learn more, go to Provado.ai. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday for a new episode. Bye for now.